Thank you, Nicole. So we're working through the book of Philippians. We're in our 10th or 11th week. And uh, we've come to um, a lengthy passage, but it's got one big idea. And, and you know, we've been focusing on um, the, the call that Jesus has on all of us as Christians to devote ourselves to the progress of the gospel. And that in that, in that devotion, we are called to a, a unity of love, a unity of mind, a unity of spirit, and to where we all have to devote ourselves to each other, uh, thinking of each other as more important than, our, than ourselves, and looking to the interests of others as well as our own. And so we have here in this passage this, this challenging dynamic that has existed for centuries in all spheres of life, politics, um, church and religion, family life, uh, sports, any aspect of life, business, the good of the whole versus the good of the individual. That is what we are perpetually uh, contemplating and discussing and debating and in conflict over in our own world. And so that, that, that concern raises itself within, this, within the church and within the scriptures as well. What is more important the individual or the community. The community and the mission, as we've seen in the text so far, needs every individual pursuing Jesus Christ to the fullest of their potential. The community needs that. The community suffers when, when all of us, each and every one of us, isn't pursuing Christ to the greatest of our ability in spirit and mind and, and heart. Um, and, and so that, that, that suffering may not be um, super tangible in every way, but the, the capacity for what we could do um, is unimaginable. Ephesians chapter 3, those of us who have studied that through our house churches, the, 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 the work that God can do in revealing his power and love in, in us is beyond anything that we can think or imagine, he says. But we also see that the individual needs the community in order for Christ to be experienced in fullness as an individual, and as a context for the fulfillment of Christ's purposes. And so, as individuals, we, we long for the full life. We long for a full experience of life. We long for what is best for us. And so, in, in, in the church and in with Christ, we find that the best for the individual is the best for the church, and the best for the church is the best for the individual. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He says, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. There's a recognition that for, for us as individuals to achieve and experience the greatest that we can, to be the fullest that we can be. It has to be given to the whole. It has to be given to the community. And according to, to Jesus and to Martin Luther King Jr., we don't start to live until that is the case. And it's not as if, it's not as if that giving of oneself to the whole um, minimizes 
The sacrifice doesn't minimize our experience. The sacrifice doesn't take from us. It takes from us. But in return to, for what we give, it gives back much more. And the scriptures always require, you know, there's, there are some uh, um, aspects of the church, some pockets of the church that will focus heavily on the individual. There are some pockets in the church that focus heavily on, on the church or the corporate experience or the mission. And what you see in Scripture is both. The Scriptures emphasize both the individual walk with God and the experience of the Christian and the life together that we are called to and the mission that we have collectively. They both have to be preached. They both have to be preached because they are both within the whole counsel of God. And today what we're going to look at is the teaching in regard to what it means to be an individual. How does an individual pursue a life that is consistent with what we've learned so far? To, to look to others' interests as well as your own. To think better of others than you do yourself. To commit together to serve with one mind, as one man, with one spirit for the progress of the gospel. What does it take for an individual to fall in line with those instructions? And so Paul says here, he's kind of giving his own story, and he goes down the list of all of the things that he gave up as an individual. And essentially, if you were to understand Paul and his world, he's describing um, the, the highest status that can be achieved as a Jewish man. There was no greater place than, than Paul was at in terms of status. In terms of if he wanted the world to look at him and to be in a place where all of the world would recognize that he is in the highest place possible uh, for a Jewish man, uh, that's where he was at. And he calls this putting confidence in the flesh. And what, it mean, what, is, what does it mean to put confidence in the flesh? Well, it is, it is having a sense of self that is defined by a number of things that are especially visible from an external standpoint. They're driven by internal things, but they are things that you can see uh, in the material world, in your fleshly self. And so we can see in, in Paul's list of things that, that achievement is one of those things. His, his understanding of who he is, his sense of being good and right and true and consistent is, is seen by an aspect of achievement. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. As to All of these things, he was at the peak of his achievement. We also see that Paul's sense of self before Christ was defined by his place among his family and his peers. How do the other people around me view me? How are other people respecting me? How am I dignified? All right, That's what it means to, to have a sense of self in the flesh. How other people view me is what is greatest and most important to me. Um, a sense of self based upon your own zeal and passion and ambition. So he's evaluating himself based on his ability to perform and to have all of his being and his energy poured into something. He says, I was, I was the most zealous. I was the most zealous. I was stood out among my peers, he said. And there was a sense of, there's a sense of moral standard. I, I live a life that is consistent with these, 
these moral standards that, that I've set out and that others have set out for me. And a sense of self defined by experiences, who he was and how he could experience life. I was a persecutor of the church. You couldn't have a more high status than Paul did. Now, none of us, or very few of us at least, can put ourselves in the, in the context of Paul as a Jewish man and put down this list as something that would be highly desirous for us. But what I want you to do is think about yourself and where you're at. What would it mean for you to become the best at who you are and what you're doing? And however you define that. And some of you might be in a place in life where you're still trying to figure out who am I and what am I called to do and what would it mean to be best at what I'm supposed to be doing, whatever that might be. And so see, we all have this sense of longing to, to become and to achieve uh, something that would give us a sense of self, a sense of place, a sense of who we are, a sense that I am a respectable person, um, I have a place in this world, I have a good life. These things that all revolve around what it means to have a, a sense of identity or a sense of self. And all of these, so Paul uses these terms throughout this passage, confidence in the flesh, glory, righteousness. All these things revolve around the same idea. Our sense of glory, glory being an idea that is really wrapped up in what we would say is, is beautiful or magnific magnificent or worthy of our time and attention and money. What we worship, we don't use the term worship in our culture, but we, we give what we're devoted to, what we pay attention to, what we hold up and honor, are, those are the things that we worship. Those are the things that we see as glorious. And a sense of righteousness isn't just this moral understanding of virtue. Righteousness is really the term that best describes what we all would desire in terms of having made it. That's what it means to be righteous. We've, we've made it. We've arrived. We've become what we've always wanted to be. Everything is right with the world, everything is right with my relationships, everything is right with my work and my family and with my sense of who God is. There's, I cannot come to a place that is any better. So glorious, righteousness, confidence, these are all things that we pursue. And as, as individuals, they are all things that we pursue and we would define our lives around. And what Paul says is that all of the perspectives and pursuits that we can have that are defined by the world, that are defined by the flesh, that are defined by external appearances, the opinions of others, the standards of others, all of these things are counted as loss. They're counted as rubbish. They're counted as nothing compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ and being found in him. Now, this, I think, is one of the most, if not the most, challenging aspects. I mean, it's really the defining aspect of what it means to live a life in devotion to Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, if, if you claim 
to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you, if you claim to, to believe that he died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, if you claim that you are going to spend eternity with heaven, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be if you claim him to be son of God and Lord of lords and king of kings, and it is to him you owe your devotion, if you claim to be a citizen in the kingdom of God, then you are called to have this perspective that everything that this world could provide is trash compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ and being found in him. Now, we can all say that, but the challenge that we have is, in our experience and in my pursuits, do I really live a life that would reflect that knowing Christ is the best possible experience that I can have? Is my sense of being loved and desired, is my sense of being loved and desired fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Or is it fulfilled in other people? And I'm dependent upon other people for a sense of being loved and a sense of being desired. Christ desires you. Christ has been pursuing and continues to pursue you. Do you know that? We long to be loved and we long to be desired. And every human being that we put that burden upon including our spouses will disappoint us and we know that they will disappoint us because we've all experienced that disappointment our parents have disappointed us our spouses have disappointed us our children have disappointed us our bosses our co-workers every person in this world has disappointed us hopefully those that are close to us that know jesus repent when they sin against us this is we hopefully repent repent when we sin against others because we've somehow broken that relationship and that trust and that and that element of being loved and desired but christ is the only one that is dependable in that our sense of security and safety you know one of the best images out of the psalms and it's kind of it's kind of it's really wimpy it's a really wimpy image in my opinion but it's david and david killed this this nine foot tall guy named Goliath, and David cannot be described as a wimp. But David yearns for God, and he says, I, 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 I find myself, and he, and he compares God to, uh, I, don't, I don't know what particular poultry it is, it's a, some sort of a bird, a hen or a, a swan, I don't know. But he describes himself as being in the, in the protection and covering of his, of his mother's wings. You know, again, that's kind of a real wimpy image. But it's an image that I find a, a great deal of comfort in in the moments of my life where I'm afraid. You know, because if, 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 if it's okay in God's eyes for me to think of myself as this, this little, what's a young chicken called? <laughs> Lawrence, what are they called when they're just born? Chicklets? What are they called? That's a, that's a gum or something, isn't it? You know, Andrew, my son, raised chickens, and we got these little two- or three-day-old chickens in the mail. Chicks? Whatever. <laughs> you know, 
there are times in my life, and it's, probably, it's all the time, really, it's all the time. We don't perceive it as all the time, but there are times in my life where I do perceive myself as one of those little two- or three-day-old chickens. And, and to be able to say that I find comfort in the protection of the mother hen is a really cool thing to be able to say when that's God's perspective. And I, I haven't found... I haven't found a sense of peace or security from any other person more so than when I think about that image. And, and I go to God with that. A sense of what is good and what is true. A sense of that in your conscience. Because it is, it is God who has given us a sense of moral right and wrong. All, all people, Romans chapter 1, all people have a sense of what is of what is fundamentally good and true and that God is God and he has eternal power and has a divine nature and that we owe our allegiance to him. All, all people know that. And when we reject that, what happens is our consciences continue to get hardened and burned so that becomes smaller and smaller and smaller the older we get. If we don't repent, we never repent. And that's finally burned out and squelched. But if we've, if we've repented and acknowledged God, then... Um, and, and we acknowledge the moral right in this world, then he gives us his Holy Spirit, and we begin to grow in what it means to have the mind of Christ. And, and we have a sense of what is true and good and that it can be pursued, and that I can live my life with an inner freedom. And there is no greater peace than, a, than that sense of, of inner freedom in knowing that, one, your sins have been cleansed and washed away, which is a gr- gives us a great sense of inner peace and freedom. And if you're still struggling with that, even though you know you're a Christian, you know you've been forgiven, you still struggle with that, you need to know that that struggle to find that inner peace and freedom is going to take some time. But it is worth the pursuit. Read, Martin, read any biography of Martin Luther. Read, read uh, Romans 6 through 8. There are some great passages of Scripture, great biographies about men and women that have, that have struggled in their early Christian life with trying to experience what it means to have that sense of peace and freedom that can only be found in the gospel. Uh, and then they find it. It took, it took years for me to pouring over scriptures that were teaching that in confession and, and just and people helping me understand. A sense of what is dignified and respectable. What does it mean to live in such a way in the world where the people around me uh, can respect and honor me as well? And Christ gives us these things. Christ gives us these things. Are we, do, do we really believe that all of these things that go into a sense of self, into a sense of my own identity, are ultimately found in Jesus Christ and that by pursuing the knowledge of him, I'm going to find what I'm looking for? It means to have a sense of calling that is defined by God's giftedness of you and the opportunities that God gives you and not just the gifts and the opportunities that are going to get you to a place where you think you need to be. Indeed, God has called us to a work. He's called us to a life. He's called us to a a family. He's put us in a family and he calls us to a family, the family of Christ. And we all have roles to play in those families. We all have a work to do. Um, Are we going to pursue what he's gifted us to do in fulfillment of his calling upon our life according to the opportunities that he's given to us. This is an other aspect of what it means to, is to know Christ. How, how has Christ gifted and called me? Okay, the more I know that, the more I know Christ. The more I see Christ's gifts to me, 
rather than just trying to achieve something, whether I'm good at it or not, for money or power or status or people's expectations, you know, the, what, what we pursue for our callings and work need to be defined by Christ. Our sense of purpose is our sense of purpose defined by what Paul has been teaching here in Philippians. The progress of the gospel, the coming of the kingdom of God, the point at which all knees will bow and every name will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the end of all things, everybody. Is, is our purpose contributing to that end? Every aspect of our lives can contribute to that end. Our work, our families, our recreation, or they can be pursued for selfish ambition. How we understand how our lives fit into that mission and purpose is another way, is another aspect of what it means to pursue knowledge of Christ and his work in us to contribute to that greater cause. And as we see throughout not just Philippians but all of Paul's letters, is our life driven by a vision? Okay, this is so consistent throughout all of all of Paul's prayers, all of Jesus' teachings, is our, is our life consumed by a vision that someday we will stand before Jesus Christ and he is going to judge us. And that point of judgment, that point of judgment, is it going to be one where we stand before him blameless and without shame or fear, to use Paul and John's terms, or is it going to be one of shame and fear? That, that, at that moment in time, everybody, there is only going to be, uh, there's only one thing that is going to matter. And if you haven't lived your, if you, have, if you can look back on your life and you know, and you're going to approach Christ and you know where you're going to be, I can guarantee you that for all of the glories of this world that you have pursued for the 60 or 70 or 80 or more years you have lived on this earth, you will have regretted every single moment if you're not able to stand before Christ at that time and say, Lord God, I have longed to see you. I am delighted to be here. This is the moment I have been living my entire life for. Okay? You guys, that has to be present in your, in your mind, in your vision, in your focus. This is what Paul is saying. Um, that's what goes, a sense of self, a sense of calling, a sense of purpose, and this sense of where my life is going to end up. And we, have, we know all of the challenges and the obstacles. We spent a lot of time talking about the, the lure of money, the lure of sex, the lure of pleasure, the lure of power, all these things that our culture is constantly throwing at us. But today I want to talk about what I think um, is a great challenge for us as Christians in, 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 in America. The lure of the ordinary life. Charles Taylor says that this is an essential part of what it means to live in the West, in the secular West, this idea of an ordinary life. And the ordinary life, I mean, it's really simple. I'm called to a work, and I'm called to a family. Or maybe not even a sense of calling, just I'm going to work, and I'm going to have a family. And that is going to make up for me what the good life is. That's going to make up for me what the good life is. Charles says, he says, I believe that this affirmation of ordinary life has become one of the most powerful ideas in modern civilization. And it can be powerful us as Christians because one, 
um, work is a huge part of what God has called us to. It's a huge part of what he's made us for, to work. Not, not just your job, but your work. All of what you do before God is work. And family, whether you're single or whether you're married, whether you have kids or don't, you are a part of a family. You were born into a family if you're born, adopted into a family. Maybe you have your own family, but the relationships around you, okay? These are both great things. And they can consume a great deal of our, of our energy and our focus and our, and our money and our time and our pursuits. And they can be exhausting and we can get to the end of one week and we just need to rest up for a couple days and start another week. And we can just constantly be living this life day after day, month after month, year after year in pursuit of just our work and our families. Good things. But I think it's a challenge for us as Christians there's nothing sinful in this life. But we as Christians, in our work and in our families, have to go all in for the sake of Jesus Christ. Our work needs to be integrated with Jesus Christ, what he's called us to, what he's gifted us to do. And you can see Josh's testimony this morning is a great example of what work in the world is without Jesus. And we all know the temptations and the stresses of, of work. Paid work, volunteer work, work in the home, whatever. Work in your yard. If you're not doing it for a higher purpose, if you're not energized by a higher power, the spirit of Jesus Christ in you, Work eventually becomes this very frustrating, disappointing, unfulfilling thing. Same with family. If, if, if in the pursuit of loving my wife and loving my children, I didn't have a higher authority in Jesus Christ and a higher power through his Holy Spirit and a continual reminder of God in his word given to us, um, I would not have what it takes for me to love my family and my kids in a good way. The, the challenges would create bitterness and anger and hostility and depression and anxiety to the point where you give up on those things, as our world does, with the divorce rate still sitting around 50%. Divorce is on the decline because marriage is on the decline. Relationships are still trashed in our culture. If we didn't have Jesus pressing us and energizing us for wholeness in these things, we couldn't do them. We couldn't do them. But if we don't have Jesus sitting at the top of our work and sitting at the top of our family, we couldn't experience the fullness that we do in our, quote, ordinary lives, which means that he's got to call us to our families have to be called to, our work has to be called to, some way of supporting and energizing and being a part of the progress of the gospel and the coming of the kingdom of God. We have to go all in. Life does not end with a work and a family. It ends, life ends when we see all things contributing towards the kingdom of God. And it is, this is when Paul says, life is at the fullest. This is when Jesus says, life is at the fullest. Our greatest experience. Because life, indeed, isn't it? It's, it's, it's in our minds. It's what we feel. It's what our hearts and emotions experience. 
those are all products of the inner life, not the external. They are products of the inner life, and they are what the Holy Spirit gives us. That's why they're called fruits of the Spirit. Joy and peace, harmony, courage. These are things that the Spirit gives us into our hearts and into our minds. We can experience physical suffering on the outside, but if it is done in the context of a life devoted to Jesus Christ for the good, that is when the Spirit gives us joy and peace and fulfillment and all of those fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's because they are coming from the inside. And that is where our sense of self must come. From Jesus Christ who has given himself for me and has put his Spirit in me and has made me one with him and the Father and the Spirit and each other. And each other. So what strategies does Paul say here? I've got four, and I'm going to spend a little time on a couple of them and mention all four. How do we overcome our tendencies to put confidence in the flesh, to put our sense of self into things that are external? First of all, we have to develop a clear understanding of what righteousness is or glory or fulfillment. We, ha we have to train our minds to understand that, that life is not going to be found in anything other than Jesus Christ. That those truths have to be in us, which is a big part of what we're trying to do in Colossians and Ephesians and Galatians. In our studies of the scriptures together as a church, we are trying to redefine collectively what it means to be righteous and to experience the righteous life. And we have to maintain, okay, so I know probably... If you're like me, some of you are probably feeling a little bit guilty or a little bit, how can I do this kind of thing. We have to maintain a realistic perspective of the process. And this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture on this very thing. There is a process to it. He says, I have not yet attained it. I have not yet attained it. This is Paul the Apostle. I mean, if anybody could list off a list of things to be counted as great as a Christian for. So he had his list as, of being a great Jew, Paul has a few places where he has a list of being a great Christian. He says he's foolish to go through those lists. But he says, you know, I've seen Jesus in heaven. I've been beat a hundred times. I've been left for, you know, all these things, all these sufferings. But he says, I have not yet attained it. So there is a failure in perfectionism. Perfectionism is not what we're called to. You guys, Eugene Peterson has a book. He wrote it 20 years ago. It's called... Um, it's the long obedience in the same direction. We have a lifetime, and it's going to take a lifetime. It's going to take a lifetime to continue to pursue to know Jesus Christ. We're going to see where we put our confidence in the flesh. We're going to rep hopefully repent of it, and we're going to continue to see more and more places where we put confidence in the flesh. Paul says, listen, I haven't attained it yet, but that's where I'm headed I'm headed. Perfectionism, the belief that you can be sinless or the belief that God wants you to be sinless is wrong. It's unbiblical and it doesn't work. And you're gonna you're, to do it, you're going to have to create some sort of standard to achieve. And that standard won't be the scriptures. The scriptures say you can't achieve it. First John says, if you claim to have no sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. So throw out perfectionism. Throw it out. You can't achieve it. What Christ is calling you to is a life devoted to knowing him. That you can achieve. That you can achieve. 
We also have to be careful of triumphalism. So these are the two kind of tendencies that Paul was dealing with in the Philippian church. Triumphalism is, if I'm a Christian, everything should go well. And that's what Paul was combating because he's sitting in jail and the Christians in Philippi, some of the Christians in Philippi are thinking, everything has gone wrong because Paul's in jail. Paul's saying, everything is going great because I'm in jail. It's that triumphalism that because I'm a Christian, because I'm a child of God, because I have the Holy, power, Holy Spirit within me, I shouldn't have troubles or struggles. No, you will have sin and you will suffer and you're not going to be victorious and achieve everything you want to triumphalism is a failure perfection is a failure triumphalism is a failure paul says i forget what lies behind i forget what lies behind here's what it means to forget you do not recall information concerning a matter what matter everything in the past everything in the past i forget i do not recall any information about my past this is a huge challenge for us as Christians, especially if we have a perfectionist mindset or tendency, which is all of us. Legalism is a, is a fleshly desire because we want to say that we've achieved and accomplished something. I've, I'm better than this. And so that leads us to regret. That leads us to regret. Paul says, I forget what lies behind. If you recall what lies behind in regret with this notion that I could have done better, I should have done better, I should have known better. You are working against the progress of the gospel in your life, and it's works-based because it's still, is it's still you wanting to put confidence in the flesh. It's you wanting to be able to say, I did this, I've done that, or I didn't do this, or I didn't do that. And at that point, you pull away from saying, I find my confidence in knowing Christ. From that to, I find my confidence in that I performed well enough. And that is going to be disappointing. And the problem is, is you can never get away from that. I mean, all of us have things in our past that plague and haunt us, that have affected us, affected others, really in some very harmful ways. And the power, the power of that harm and the power of that evil is great. And that's oftentimes what brings us into these um, times where we just sit and regret. And we try to call to mind. I mean, we'll sit there and we'll, we will intentionally try to call to mind what we could have done better, how we failed. And Paul says this, listen, you have got to forget you have got to stop recalling your past if you're going to live a life that is found on a confidence in knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and gospel. Negative thoughts and feelings do not lead to gospel motivation or transformation. It leads you to further shame and guilt and it denies the gospel. It denies the gospel in your life and it denies the gospel in the circumstances that you're so fearful of. It's hard. This, this is hard. No wonder Paul says, I haven't not yet attained it. This is hard living. We have to believe and live in the gospel now, and it will include suffering. 
And if we can get rid of triumphalism, if we can get rid of perfectionism, if we can get rid of fear and guilt, and shame, if we can get rid of all of these deceptions and lies and untruths. And this is why, you guys, to know Christ is to continually set those things aside. Not just being able, I'm going to set these things aside. You will have an understanding of Christ in the gospel that from your heart sets those things aside and just says, you know, those things aren't true. I don't, I don't want to recall the past because I have the power of the gospel to look forward to the future. You see? And so it's not something that you can just churn out. It's something that you have to obey for the long haul. Obey the gospel. It's something that you have to, you have to learn Christ over a lifetime. And the quick religious experiences that we anticipate in this world, a, a quick emotional spurt of energy, okay? That's not, that's not what Christ calls us to. Christ calls us to this long obedience in the same direction of knowing him. And if, we're, if we pursue that, if we get past the ordinary life, okay, living, I'm working hard, I'm loving my family, I'm contributing to those, if we, if we can just go, if we can go full, full bore after Jesus Christ, get all in, all right, all in. Yes, family, work, everyday life, boring, mundane, challenging things. All of those things are going to press you to know Jesus Christ more and more and more and more. And we press all of those things for the ongoing pursuit of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of the church and the lives of the people around us. We're all called to this common thing, and it will take a lifetime. It will take a lifetime. And finally, he says to rejoice. He says to rejoice at the, at the beginning, rejoice at the end. And see, and this fights against that grumbling and complaining that we addressed a few weeks ago that is so, so, so frequently uh, pulls us to complain about our circumstances. And, and that attitude of complaining is, again, a divergence from knowing Christ. To know Christ in all of our circumstances is to endure the suffering of our circumstances and to become Paul says in this passage I long to know Christ through his sufferings the moments of our suffering where we're tempted to complain and tempted to dispute and argue and grumble those are the very as we as we said a few weeks ago those are the very instances where Christ is wanting us to know him more and in those moments of our worst that is when the Holy Spirit can give within us a sense of life. It is a, it is a fight. It is a fight in the mind. This, this last week, this battling. This, is, this, this series, I've been battling through this series because God has just been teaching me. I came to a point of, of confession. And it was a fight to get there because I was, was going to become vulnerable. I was going to become weak like that little chicken. But once I, once I walked through that confession and vulnerability, the, the, the days of, of anger, just, they just completely lifted. Completely lifted. And we rejoice. And the rejoicing, this command to rejoice, presses us to move through our suffering with our eyes on Jesus and the gospel. It, it is a discipline that Paul is trying to, to burn into us. Rejoice. 
because the gospel has life for you in this suffering. Let me pray. Thank you.